All Rise Starter Quest is now in session. A podcast where we look at classic video games through the eyes of a pre-trial arraignment. Episode number 12, we'll be hearing the case of Starter Quest v Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. I am your host, the hotshot defence counsel for video games, Alessandro Crolla, alongside my spiritual assistant and star of this podcast, Jen Hughes. Hey everyone! How's it going? Good, yeah, how are you? Not too bad. It's still wonderful to watch the numbers come in since the Attitude Era read. Yeah, we sometimes check Podbean just out of sheer vanity. Hopefully it's not going to become a complex. Let's hope we have a better time with this game than we did with Duke Nukem. Yeah, sorry Duke Nukem fans. I did not have a great time with that game. What have you been playing recently? I've been playing more of The Sims 2. Still? Still. It is a regular fixture in my life. I love it. I've been playing it off and on since I was about 12, for those who haven't heard me mention it for the 500th time. I do want to ask then, because the whole point of this podcast was to try and help you increase your gaming diet. Why haven't you been interested to try things like Final Fantasy VIII yet? Are you accusing me of not having a healthy, balanced diet? I'm just saying, The Sims 2 is a very nourishing game. It has a lot of nutritional value, but I worry that you're not eating your JRPG greens enough. Fuck your greens! <laughs> I'll eat them what I want! <laughs> Alright, fair enough, fair enough. I do want to play Final Fantasy VIII, and there are lots of games in the pipeline that I want to play, but my comfort game is Sims 2. Mm-hmm. It's what I go to. I am, like, mired in a short story collection at the moment. I've only got so much brain juice left, so I'm going to turn to my comfort food. Fair enough, fair enough. Just don't come crying to me with your Sims 4 diabetes when that disease finally takes you. It's not going to take me. I've played The Sims 4 before and it's boring. How about you? What have you been playing? Sue, if you're not going to play sequels to games on this podcast, then I will. I've been playing Resident Evil 4. Oh, look at you. If you're not going to play sequels, then I will. Someone has to kill Napoleon and it might as well be me. Wait, who's that again? I don't think you were paying attention to the screen at that time. No, I was busy playing Sims 2. Although, of course, like the rest of gaming, I'm preparing myself for The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which is coming out on Friday. Ooh, very exciting. Well, you'll need to let us know in the next episode how you found it. I'm going to be quite cagey on my opinion on the game, because we do have an episode of Legend of Zelda to do at some point on this podcast. And I'll let the listener guess which one we're obviously going to do. <laughs> yeah. For now, though, let's take the time and do Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. You have wanted to do this for ages. This is one that I've had on my list to do since the start of this podcast. Yeah. I kid you not, before we started this podcast, I made episode art for six episodes just to test myself to see how I would do them. Like our first three episodes, Mario 3, Secret Monkey Island, Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green. But I did a few other games though to see how I'd approach them and one of them was Phoenix Wright. So before I started this podcast, I've had the episode art ready for this episode. This was always going to get done at some point. So the fact I did that should show that there's absolutely no hyperbole when I say that there are few video game series that I love as much as I do the Phoenix Wright series. Yes. Just to start off though, I do have to ask, what is the genre of this game? Uh, Anime murder mystery simulator? I can see how you came to that conclusion, but that's not a genre. Puzzle detective RPG? No, that's not entirely right. It is like a game we've done before. We've only done one of these type of game before, and not for a very long time on this podcast. Uh, Monster Tamer RPG. Point and click adventure? Not a point and click adventure, but it is an adventure game. Right, okay. 
this will be us stepping foot into the genre of the visual novel adventure game. Oh, yeah, of course. Visual novel. So you've heard of visual novels before? Yeah, yeah. There's loads of them. Dream Daddy Simulator is a visual novel, isn't it? The one where you date all the dads? Was it Game Grumps that made that one? They were involved in it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm trying to think if there's been any other ones. I swear I remember playing a visual novel from somewhere, but I'm probably wrong. Do you know what a visual novel game looks like? With a visual novel, the video games are laid out where there's a lot of reading text involved, Mm -hmm. but you get moving video game parts. It's more like animation, but you've got multiple choice in your story that affects where it can go. In some ways, it's a bit like a picture book. When a character's speaking, for example, you get like their face with like some movement that they do with text of what they're saying underneath it. Mm-hmm. As far as I know with Phoenix Wright, there's some puzzle bits as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much that applies to other visual novels, though. It's not uncommon. I would always say that with these type of games, it's more the idea that you are in it for reading the story, but it is about how they animate it and design it to make it more, as you said, a bit like a picture book. Mm-hmm. The text in your visual novel could be great, but if the visuals look terrible, people aren't going to want to read it. Yeah, and quite conversely, there are some beautifully drawn visual novel games, but the story is atrocious and not worth playing. Yeah, I guess it's like a different kind of like comic book or manga. It's got a combination of like visual pictures and text. Except I think there's a good bit more text in visual novels, Mm -hmm. which is probably why they're called visual novels and not like moving comic books. Now, I think you've already said this, but with this being a visual novel, do you know what the game's about? It's about a defence lawyer called Phoenix Wright. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of murder mystery type game Mm -hmm. where instead of playing a detective, you play a defence lawyer trying to find his client innocent. He doesn't really want to believe that they're guilty, but he's supposed to be our protagonist. If he's got dubious ethics, I don't know how many people would want to play as him. Clearly you've never met the American justice system. <laughs> but yeah, you are playing as a defense attorney mm. named Phoenix Wright. Do you know what he looks like? He's another one of those Japanese video game characters with gravity-defying hair. In what way? It's like a quiff. But it's like slip back, so it goes behind his head, like he's aerodynamic. Yeah, like he has got like speed lines. Yeah, speed lines, that's it. It's like, I think the gameplay is broken up into like finding clues and interviewing people and everything like that. And then there's the court case where you have to bring forward all the evidence that you found in the puzzle section. Mm-hmm. I think you've got a time limit. If you get something wrong, it'll affect if you progress in the game or not. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of quirky characters who have either their calm exterior where they're like playing it cool or they're like, I'm guilty, I'm totally guilty. Ah, I'm really stressed out. It's like two states of mind and each person's animation is different depending on what their character is. It's not just that they look different, it's that their mannerisms and the animation are different Mm -hmm. and their emotion is very unique to their character. That's how I can best describe that, to be honest. Okay, it sounds like you then have quite a good grasp of what's going on in this game. Yeah, I do remember a good bit from when you used to play a while ago. Yeah, I think you would have caught me playing the 
trilogy in 2019. Mm-hmm. Long before we had the idea to do this podcast. Yeah, because you've been trying to keep me away from certain video games that we're going to be covering. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of content from both the video game YouTubers I like, but also fellow podcasters that I can't watch because it might give me spoilers leading up to the episode and you want to keep that innocence pure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't let you gain knowledge yet, not until I teach you. Only I can teach you these things. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know more about the characters of this game? Because obviously you know Phoenix Wright. So there's Maya or Maya. Like she's psychic and she's got a necklace and wears pink. You say she's psychic. Does it mean that she can like... Oh wait, no, it's not psychic. It's clairvoyant. And what's her power then? What can she do? She can speak to ghosts. Oh, you know how you get those spirit channelers in Pokemon? Mm-hmm. In Lavender Town? Mm-hmm. I think she's one of those. So she channels ghosts and the ghosts speak through her. What makes you think that? I don't know. I think she's just got the look. What have the spirits been telling you? Uh, yes. They also say that they're watching over you and they love you very much. So what, I'm guessing she's going to go alongside Derek Akora of like trying to bring back Jacko's spirit? Oh no, you've given me flashbacks. I don't want to think of Derek Pakora. <laughs> like, oh no, seriously, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. I can't go over that that happened. There was a Michael Jackson seance, like literally right after he died. And they had a whole bunch of Michael Jackson fans in a circle saying that, oh yeah, you know, I think I feel his spirit in the room. It was in British TV. It actually happened. The British public allowed this to happen. What? Okay. There's also Mia. I think she's his mentor, but like she dies at one point. But she appears to him as a force ghost or something. (laughs) And just at the right moment, whenever he's having a really hard time with a case, she's there. There's Dick Gumshoe. Okay, how do you know all these fucking characters? You know too much about this Right, okay. I hate to say this, but I also watched like a tiny, tiny bit of the Phoenix Wright Turnabout musical. It was like the first five minutes or less. Boo. But it's because one of my uni friends is involved in it. He's the chief editor, I think, mm-hmm. for the project that they were doing during COVID. It's pretty good so far from what I've heard, but I can't watch any more of it yet because I didn't want to spoil too much of this podcast. Yeah, I have watched a little bit of it and it does tell the exact story of this game. Yeah, so I'm quite glad I didn't watch it all. I've enjoyed what I've heard so far. The very small amount I've heard so far. But enough that you know the names Maya, Mia and Dick Gumshoe. No, no, I remembered Maya and Mia beforehand, but I was reminded of Dick Gumshoe's name by watching the musical. Which, how could I have forgotten that? What an iconic name. Short for Richard, of course. Richard Gumshoe. Very evocative. So, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Fitting name? Yes, very fitting. Good parents that would choose that? Yep, very good parents. Okay, okay. I'm not going to judge. Okay, I don't know any more names from here, but I know of characters. Okay. There's the balding, anxious tutorial lawyer... He's a bit incompetent. Is he like your ally or... No, he's the first person you out-lawyer. So the prosecution? Yes, that's it. There's another one. She's a German blue-haired lawyer, Mm -hmm. prosecutor. She might be a child prodigy, like a child genius, and has like daddy issues. Who's her daddy? Another very high-profile lawyer. And she lives under his shadow. 
Okay. I don't know his name though. Okay. Um, there's the coffee drinking lawyer, like the one who drinks coffee in court. Okay. But I don't think you're supposed to do that in court, but he does it because he's an icon or something. Is he an attorney or a prosecutor? He's a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I'm listing mostly prosecutors here. And he's got white hair, and I think he was your PlayStation profile picture for a long time? Yes. Now, he's from the third game, so we're not seeing him in this game. Ah, oh, right, okay. But I fucking love him. I'm playing it right now as a bed, and we'll have a good chance to gush about music. But I'm just going to say right now, nothing in this game beats the music that is his theme. He's also got, like, sunglasses, like Geordie from Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> he is one of my personal favourites, but sadly we're not going to see him in this game. Ah, okay. There's also a lawyer who, like, turns up with a big wine goblet and a red velvet coat with, like, the frilly tie thing. What's that called again? Cravat. A cravat, that's it. I knew it had a fancy name like that. Just iconic, flagrantly drinking alcohol in the courtroom. Nobody says a thing because he's just that great. He's truly a camp icon. I adore it. I think you might be bleeding two characters together here with this one. Of all those prosecutors, with the exception of the one that I said we're not getting, do you think they're all going to appear in this game? Yes. And you're just going to be taking on all these prosecutors at once, or...? Oh no, it's going to be one at a time, obviously, and with different court cases. Okay, okay. I think they can all string together in some way, unless it's like... No, it's definitely not a case of, like, the same person going through, like, several different lawyers because they don't agree with them. I think they are different court cases that are kind of related. Who are your defendants? Who do you think they are? Um, sometimes they're friends. Mm-hmm. I think there's one of them that's his friend like, mm-hmm. at the start, and his friend's convinced he's guilty, and Phoenix is like, no, you're not guilty, you're fine, you're overreacting, I'll, I'll get you out of this. That also from the musical? Yeah, ah. but I think there's other ones, I don't think they're all related to him. Mm-hmm. He's not just getting his friends and families out of a bind, they're like, just weird, kooky characters. Okay, okay. Of varying types and ages and sizes and stuff. And are they all innocent or do you think some are guilty? I'm assuming that they're all innocent. I think Phoenix Wright goes into that approach, but I don't know how often he's successful in that. Okay. I hope he's successful in all of it, but I don't know. So you think every case is just going to be, my client didn't do this and should be called innocent? You kind of go in a bit up in the air. It's not like super obvious that they are. But I know that Phoenix Wright tries to go in with the approach of that because he doesn't believe that they're guilty. But whether or not they are is up to the player to find out. Okay, that's fine. There's also the judge. Yes, there is the judge. What do you know about the judge? He's a dippy old man who's very easily persuaded, Mm -hmm. but like not by bribes. I don't think he's ever bribed. But he is, like, easily persuaded by the arguments of both sides. And basically it's how well you put forward your argument. He doesn't seem to be the brightest candle in the cake, but maybe I'm just underestimating him. Okay, okay. So how do you expect this game is going to be laid out? So puzzles, searching for clues. There's, like, a cross-examination where, like, you go through, like, the dialogue of the testimony and you pick the points where you yell objection. So yelling objection is a big thing in this game. Yelling objection is a big thing in this game, yeah. Yeah, I think we kind of gave that away by putting it in the end of the last episode. Yes. Objection! 
a lot of people who have heard of Phoenix Wright already know about the yelling objection everywhere. Is there anything else being yelled at? Just objection? Hold it. Hold it! Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of slamming hands on desks and mm-hmm. shaking heads. Any other big famous lines you shout? Uh, Usually it's Phoenix Wright just shouting his favourite boy band of the 90s. Boys to Men? <laughs> oh, wait! No, I know the one! I know the one! Take that! Yes! Take that! Ah! <laughs> Fucking Boys to Men! <laughs> okay, so you're shouting objection to their points. Relight my fire. No. Dilly, your love is my only <laughs> desire. <laughs> okay okay so it's funny you're getting some things bang on and some things that are shockingly off well i'm sure i'll find out which is which <laughs> do you know who made this game john romero <laughs> i want to play that game but no <laughs> john romero's girlfriend mia no capcom as much as it seems like a third guess yes Capcom again? Now, I know, I know. We have done four episodes since we lasted a Capcom game. There have been loads of them. It's like about half our podcast. That's not true. We've done three Nintendo games already. Uh, I guess so. But what can I say? Capcom kept coming out with great ideas. Again, I'm always going to regret the fact we did like Street Fighter 2 and Resident Evil back to back. I hate that we did that, but it just was where Halloween fell. I suppose so. Yeah, I would like to spread it out. I mean, we are getting quite distant away from Duke Nukem with this game. Yes, which I'm glad about. In this game, you do get to save the babes. Yay! Now, I have racked my brain up and down for weeks on deciding the format. There's no reason we can't play the PS4 remasters, as they are the exact same game, with the only addition of better graphics. This would be far easier for us to play together, as we can just sit on the sofa and play the game on my comically large TV. (laughs) However... I cannot for the life of me recommend that format over the simple, classic Nintendo DS version. It's what got me into the franchise, and I won't deny it is the absolute perfect fit format for a visual novel. Yeah. Now, I have to be honest though, that this DS version is still not the original version. Really? This game originally released in Japan as a Game Boy Advance game. Ah. Which was Nintendo's last handheld console. Yeah, which I used to play Pokemon. But with the DS version, they made a remake of it that also released internationally. So I've dug out the DS and we're playing this on the Nintendo DS for our very first time on this handheld. This machine that you can put in your bag, pick it up and play through it. And whenever you're done, you just close it over and it suspends. It goes back in your bag until you're ready to play it again. A bit like a book. Exactly like a book. So most people listening to this will know what a Nintendo DS is and what it looks like. Mm Mm-hmm. But for those who don't, it's a handheld console. It's got two screens and your usual direction buttons and your Y, X, A, B, your start and select buttons. Mm -hmm. It's kind of similar sides to what you'd expect from the SNES controller. It comes with a stylus, a little pen thing. It's not like a pen you can write with, but it's just for the purpose of holding to touch the device with. The top screen is a bit like the screen from a Game Boy Advance, Mm -hmm. but the bottom screen is a touch screen. You just like use your little stylus or your finger to interact with the different aspects of the game. Yes. For a lot of gamers, this would have been the very first instance of touchscreen gaming. I know for me, that's what it was because I played Nintendogs when it came out. Yeah. Same for me with the Yu-Gi-Oh games. Mm -hmm. You're going to be playing this on the DS, right? Yeah. 
I bought an American import of this game back on the DS and absolutely fell in love with it. I've played nearly every game of the series. Even the spin-off game Ace Attorney Investigations 2, which never came out in the West through a fan translation. But I have yet to finish the most recent Ace Attorney Chronicles 2. I was playing that game when we moved in together and I've been avoiding playing it around you. Oh, is that the one where they're in Sherlock Holmes times? Yes, and you're with Herlock Holmes. Yeah. So basically I'm just covering this franchise so I can finally finish that game. <laughs> Genuinely though, like I didn't even buy a 3DS until the exact day that they released Phoenix Wright 5. Yeah. That's how much I love the series. I'll buy consoles for the series. A bit like how I'd buy a Nintendo Switch just to play Animal Crossing. Right, I'll go into the rules of gameplay just to explain what we're doing here. Rule one, as this will be on the DS, you'll be playing the game mostly alone. Mm-hmm. It's in no way a difficult game to play. Think like Secret Monkey Island of how uncomplicated the mechanics are. Yeah. It's more about how you solve the logic of the game. Rule two, if you need help, I'll offer cryptic clues to help you get your thinking in the right line. I'm going to try and do all this from memory. I've not played this game since 2019. But I have beaten this game at least 10 times in my life, and I should be able to remember a lot of this off the top of my head. Rule three, which I'm increasingly thinking we should give a special to you of the cutoff point. Mm-hmm. Now, this game is broken up into five episodes. The first four were original, and the fifth one was made specifically for the DS version. I'll set the minimum for recording the second half as three episodes, but I'll get your quest failed. Four episodes, I'll do your quest complete. Okay. Because that's the main story of the game. Oh, and the fifth one is just a happy extra. It's a happy extra, very fun, and I recommend we do play it. But if you don't get around to it by the time we record the second half, I still will call it a quest complete. Mm. So you have your stylus. Fuck, I think I've lost it. Yeah, that checks out. Those things are so easy to lose. Hang on. Found it. And you have your knowledge of the bastardized American justice system. Vaguely. Are you ready to take Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney to court? Yes, my lord. Okay. Let's get started. Welcome back. What are your immediate thoughts on the game? I loved it. You like this one then? I really, really liked it, yeah. Welcome. What worked about it for you? Well, for one, the gameplay is really fun and satisfying. I like the visual novel element. There's so much of the game's mechanics that's made up with the puzzles, which are also really satisfying to solve. Mm-hmm. They're not impossible, but there's loads of times where it's really difficult. But that sense of accomplishment when you've got it is just... I don't know if you can really beat it, at least when it comes to video games. But you say it's puzzles. I mean, are we talking about jigsaws or what? It's mostly finding clues and Mm -hmm. evidence to match up with the cases, as well as cross-examination. That's where the objections and take that's come in. You've got to find inconsistencies or contradictions in a witness's testimony, and you've got to find the right piece of evidence or press the right thing and ask them to talk more about it to progress in the game yeah so when you say puzzles you're kind of more meaning the logic of the mystery yeah the logic and mystery solving Mm -hmm. i was right when i said it was anime murder mystery it is just a mystery of the week crime drama Mm. 
with the caveat added that you are defending a client who's been wrongly accused and that the legal system is completely fucking bonkers in this world. It is an absolute kangaroo court. Like, <laughs> genuinely, there are more kangaroos in that courtroom than there are in Australia. <laughs> There are hundreds of YouTube videos of lawyers looking at this game, tearing their hair out at how bad the legal system is. Yeah, like if you're looking for a lawyer, talk about any piece of legislation ever at all that has ever existed, you'll be sadly disappointed because you are more a detective Sherlock Holmes than you are a lawyer. True. I mean, we'll get into design in a bit, but let's just say that they were thinking more on the detective side than the lawyer side when coming up with the idea. Yeah, yeah, it shows. Mm -hmm. But I really like it. I love the characters. I love the camaraderie of the kind of core cast. And just, you know, them getting to know each other a little bit better as the crimes go on. Yeah, I really, really enjoy it. Right, just so we can get a bit more of an understanding of how the game plays, how does the game break down? The structure of each case is roughly as follows. The start is the crime committed. A lot of the times you don't see who commits the crime, but you kind of have like an outline type thing, if at all. Mm -hmm. And then after you get the start of the investigation, where Phoenix and Maya start asking people questions and gathering an investigation, you use the touch screen a mm -hmm. lot of the time so you can talk to someone mm -hmm. you can examine the room mm -hmm. you can move to different places the game kind of tells you what places you can visit at a certain point and the fourth button is present so if you've got an existing piece of evidence that you want to show to someone you're interviewing they might give you more information about it but they may also go like what's this don't know what to do with that why are you showing me that mm -hmm. even when it's something that they probably should know what it is. If it's not useful to you right now, they will act like they've got no idea what it is you're holding in your hand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's how the investigation goes. You go about the crime scenes, investigate items. Some are of interest to the case. Some just give you funny dialogue. So you can see now why I brought up stepladders in the end of the last episode. Is it the fact that every time you click on a stepladder or a ladder, they keep arguing about what's the difference between the two? Yes. In the game, it describes it that a stepladder is a ladder that's freestanding and folds out, whereas a ladder needs to be propped up against something. But you get big ladders that stand in their own, don't you? They are just big stepladders. So in wrestling, it should be called a stepladder match because it's not propped up against anything. Yeah, that's a very good point. It should be a stepladder match. But that's the difference that Phoenix insists and no one agrees with him. Is he right? Yes, his surname is right. <laughs> <laughs> that was bad. Anyway, you go about the crime scenes, you find clues, you present those clues to sometimes witnesses, sometimes the defendant. One of the places you keep coming back to is the detention centre. Yeah, there's the sad music that plays as they're sitting behind the partition and they're like, Oh, it wasn't me, but no one's going to believe me. Mm. I'm so sad I'm going to jail for the rest of my life. And then Phoenix is like, no, I'm going to save you. You're innocent, and I'm going to prove to everyone, including you, that you're innocent. And then I'm going to get the champion's belt, you'll see. <laughs> 
I'll be the one to get the money suitcase from the top of the ceiling. Yes, I'll win the stepladder match. <laughs> yes! <laughs> and that then contradicts to the other phase of the game. The other phase of the game is the courtroom. Mm-hmm. You've got to cross-examine the witnesses that they put up to the stand. Usually witnesses that you've been speaking to in the investigation phase. Mm-hmm. There's the witness testimony phase. You cross-examine the witnesses who you've interviewed before mm-hmm. and they've got pieces of dialogue that you've got to see, well, is it true or does it contradict the evidence or is it inconsistent? You can press on it and ask them more about it. What does he shout when he presses someone? Hold it! Yes. He tells you to hold it and he presses it further to get more information on that particular point. Best way to go for me is unless you're penalised for pressing at the wrong places, just press everything. Oh yeah, 100%. Press everything. The game will tell you if you're not allowed to press things, Mm -hmm. but press everything. Yeah, yeah, because you never know, especially if you're stuck in a puzzle that you're not sure of. So if you don't press it, you can present evidence to the court. If you've got an objection, you pick the piece of evidence that contradicts their statement. Yeah, usually the witness testimony ends with you either pressing everything and then you move on, or you present an objection that will end that phase of the witness testimony. If you get anything wrong, you get punished, you get a life taken off you. You've only got like five chances... And if you use up all five of those, the game's over and you've got to start again. Yes, your client is found guilty Mm -hmm. and the truth is lost. And Phoenix Wright sits sadly at the bar and drinks. How would you describe this world? It's a bit of a strange one. It's very strange. It's quite insular. I think it's supposed to be somewhere in America, possibly. But then, is it? It's got parts of Western culture that you assume is America. And then you've also got parts of Japanese culture. Think it might be set in America Pan or Jamerica? Because <laughs> it's like a pocket dimension at the end of the universe that just happens to look like both America and Japan simultaneously. Right. Originally, it's just set in Japan. Right. The English version wanted to move it to America. Right. But because there is this weird Japanese element through the entire game. The translator has said they envision it being like a version of Los Angeles that didn't have restrictive Japanese building laws after World War II. Right. So Japanese culture thrived in America after World War II. So this is alternative history then? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, it's quite strange actually when you think about it. But yeah, super insular. I have to ask though, are the people from Jamaica Jamaicans? <laughs> I mean, you know, it is virtual insanity. <laughs> nice. Okay, so it's just pulling apart witness testimony is the only thing you do in court. There are sometimes choices you have to make where you can either press even further or leave it. Sometimes you'll get a moment with three buttons that have different answers and you have to pick the right one. Yeah, a multiple choice question. Mm -hmm. It'll be like, so where do you propose the witness was at the time of the murder? In the room, at the door, or at the window? Yeah, yeah. Just to see that you're following the logic of the case so far. I think a big part of the game is just trying to work out what really happened based on the story people tell you and what the lies are. Mm -hmm. If someone's lying that they were, for example, not in the room when you've got evidence of them being in the room. Or if there's inconsistencies in what time things happened, Mm -hmm. which is something I'm not great at. So I had to work very hard to make sure I got 
those references, and even then I may have missed it. Yeah, timing is a big element of this game. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first murder weapon they use is a clock. Oh god, the thinking man clock. Oh god, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So it is a lot of just trying to put the logic together. If you ever watched like a crime drama and you, the audience, are trying to work out who the killer is as you watch the show, this game is great for giving you that feeling of solving the crime yourself. You know what it's like if you were Columbo, but you're a lawyer and you live in Jamaica. This is a great game for people who are big fans of their crime shows. Mm. We'll get a bit more into how the cases are laid out to give you examples. There's a thing about the tone of this game that I think needs discussing, though. For all the murder and horrible things that are going to happen and the implications of what happens to some people after those murders, the game is very, very lighthearted. Yeah, there's a big element of comedy to the game. Yeah, yeah. You will laugh at some of the things you read. And some of the things that happened in court. But it does kind of juxtapose that this is a murder trial, someone has been killed, there are grieving families involved. Someone's life has been ruined. Yeah, but everyone's here just having a laugh. Yeah. (laughs) It does have a bit of like tone whiplash. Most of the game is like that. It's just this strange dissonance. But I think it's another hallmark to some cosy murder mysteries is a lighthearted tone. I mean, I'll talk more about it in my final analysis, but it's kind of a necessary part of that particular genre. Mm -hmm. For a good reason. It's not just the artist being weird and avant-garde. It's rooted in the genre. Absolutely, yeah. For now, I just want to go through the history and design of the game. Mm -hmm. As I said in our intro, this game originally came out in 2001 on the Game Boy Advance under its Japanese name, Gyakutan Saiban, meaning turnabout trial. Going into this game's themes of overturning a guilty verdict through contradictions that underpins nearly every case of the game. Ah, yeah, yeah. That being said, we're playing the DS version that came out in autumn 2005 in Jamaica. Yeah. (laughs) And then came to Europe in March of 2006. At the heart of this series is the long-standing creator, Shu Takemi. Takemi had a few years of game planning through the PS1 era, working on Resident Evil 1.5. There was a Resident Evil 1.5. When they were making Resident Evil 2, they made this whole version that they threw out. That version has now been called 1.5. Was it like a first draft of Resident Evil 2? Yes. That they thought, yeah, we're just going to sell that as 1.5. No, no, it never released. Oh, it never released, so it's lost media. Yes, it is. Ah, cool, nice. But what he did work on, that did release, was the Dino Crisis series. Oh yeah, is that the one where like you fight dinosaurs or something? Yeah, it's built in the same engine the Resident Evil games are made on. Except instead of zombies, it's dinosaurs. Yeah, the tank controls are just as bad as far as I've heard. He originally directed Dino Crisis 1. Sadly, his inexperience threw the project into disarray. He got demoted to a planner so another director could step up and finish the game. Yeah, maybe a bit out of his depth. At that point, yes. Yeah, yeah, at that point. But they did give him a second chance to direct Dino Crisis 2, and that one did come out. Ah, right, that's good. I won't say too much about Dino Crisis 2, because we might cover it in the future. Mm -hmm. But the game is a success, and as a way to reward Takemi for the success, his boss, and returning name Shinji Mikami... Oh yeah, the guy who directed Resident Evil 1. Mm -hmm. Rewarded Shu Takemi with the reins to make any game he liked with a small team. Mm-hmm. Capcom were trying to expand their portfolio and liked putting rising names behind big projects to see if they can land a massive hit for small input. Going for a quantity kind of style approach. 
You put out a lot of small ideas with small teams, see how big they get and either push it further or you bin it. It's experimenting, basically. Mm -hmm. Back in the days where big companies could do that. Yeah. Long cry from the Capcom of today, which has not released a new franchise in 10 years. Mm. The team was full of rookie staff members. With the plan that Takemi was going to bring experience to the rookies before they get moved on to bigger projects, manga artist Kumiko Suikane designed the characters. She has gone on to have a bit of a minor manga following. Right. What else did she make? Um, A bit of smaller mangas like Versailles and Dead and After School Charisma. Ah, right. Okay. Which is a manga about all of the world's greatest names in the one high school. Okay. So you've got Bonaparte, Churchill, I think, Hitler. Hang on, what? <laughs> no, oh. no, fuck off. Hitler's not actually in that manga. Yes, he is. He's a character. Oh, fucking hell. Right, go on. So she brought a lot of that identifiable design to the characters. She opted for the manga style because that allowed for the big expressions that become a massive part of this game when you're tearing down their testimony. Yeah, yeah. Character design is a real, real highlight. Really iconic, really evocative. Says everything about them before you really get to know them. And just some of the faces, like, I always love Edgeworth's exasperated face. Uh Uh-huh. Where he's like bending over the desk and he's got his eyes all sunken in. Takemi's original idea was to make a detective game, building the visual novel format away from the usual places of fantasy, space, and dating sims, and bring it into doing investigation like this. Yeah. The game would be about building up clues, and then pointing out how these clues differ from the established story of events to work out the true culprit. The original plan was to have a detective need to defend himself legally in the first case, when he has a useless lawyer. Oh. However, Takemi was finding a lot more fun writing the contradicting stuff, especially in this courtroom setting where detectives were serving as their own lawyer. This ended up becoming the focus of the game and the detective being replaced with the lawyer as the protagonist. And that's where the idea of Phoenix Wright comes from. Ah, right, okay. The music of this game was composed by Masakazu Sugimori, a music designer who worked on a lot of Capcom games. Mm-hmm. The music in this game is some of my absolute favourites in gaming. Yeah, the music's really good. It sets the scenes really well, but also listening to it as an album in its own right, it makes my ears so happy. There's an awesome video from 8-Bit Music Theory on YouTube that goes into the details of some of the music psychology that goes into the design of the music. Oh yeah? That I do highly recommend watching. But even to a music layman like myself, I've always easily plugged into the emotions this music is trying to invoke with every section of the game. Oh yeah, me too. When you're going through the testimony and the music is playing through, it does help build the pressure of finding the contradiction. You're pressing points for info, trying to push them to falter enough that you can find the flaw. It keeps the tension as you're trying to find that crack in that armour, you know? Yeah. But when you do, and Phoenix shouts, OBJECTION! The music quickly stops on the objection that you just heard me do right there. Phoenix explains what the contradiction was. The objection music plays and it becomes this triumphant moment where you get to stand proud that you found the lie in what they're saying. Yeah. As the defendant has this look of, oh shit, that you've now pushed back and caught the error. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I really love the music in it. It just, every piece works so well. I think I like Maya's theme. I really like that one. Yeah, we'll play that when we talk about Maya. Yeah, yeah. It's this really nice, happy-go-lucky song. I do also want to talk a little bit about the sound designer, Atsushi Mori. 
another very stable hand within Capcom who made a name for himself within the Japanese gaming industry. I don't think Yumi celebrates sound design enough on this podcast, admittedly. Yeah, yeah. But I do feel some special mention is in order here. With it basically all being text and pictures on screen, the sound effects are used to help animate that text. That little sting with the ding, and there's a question like a huh, and then the ding, and you've got an epiphany. Ah, oh, top notch, really satisfying. Or when the prosecutor says something that's very damning for the case, and it comes with a thud. Yeah, or the slamming sound in the table. That moment wouldn't be complete without that sound effect of the table being slammed. Mm-hmm. I'm putting a few into the section right now for effect. Mm-hmm. But it helps in the audio experience of this game. Yeah. And draws you into the scene. The sound design coupled with the music just helps deliver some of the best moments that any visual novel has to offer. I think that there would be something very lacking if it wasn't for like the music and the sound design. It really brings everything together. Let me set an example I've made to highlight this. Starting with the pursuit theme. This is the music that plays when you've entirely destroyed someone's testimony. Mm-hmm. They've been caught lying in such a blatant way that usually means disaster for this witness. Phoenix saying, You said you saw the crime across the street, but this evidence has your fingerprints at the crime scene. With the witness drowning on the objection stand with their own flop sweat when they know that they've been caught in a lie. When suddenly, Objection! Rings out from the prosecution. Music stops and switches to suspense. As the prosecution points out that even if the witness was at the crime scene, it could have been after the crime occurred. The witness corroborating this explanation, they did go back to check on the victim after the crime, pushing the pressure back on the defendant and onto Phoenix. Mm. But wait, did they say that they went to check on the victim? This can't be true, as this different piece of evidence proved that they left immediately after the crime occurred. And the pursuit music just kicks right back in with that little flare. The pressure's back on, and you're nailing this witness again. The lie still exists, they haven't got out of it. This slimy git is still lying about what they did, and there could be only one reason when they are the true culprit. Yeah, the amount of perjury that's committed in this courtroom, and the amount of times they have to go back on their testimony and do it again, is absolutely ridiculous. This is obviously a very simplified version of the events you might get in these cases, but it does show how the music and sound work so perfectly together to set the tone of the excitement of the courtroom drama. Mm. I mean, the courtroom drama, there's so much of it that is just not how a courtroom works. <laughs> okay, we're going to do the playthrough now. Now, the game is broken up into five episodes, each one including the name Turnabout, as per the Japanese name. Ah, uh, most of them. As always, we're going to go through details to explain the scenario of the case and the characters, but we're going to try really hard to not reveal too much about the mystery and not say who the killers are for each case but the first. Yeah, but the first. That's just in case anyone who's listening wants to then go on and play this game, which I highly would recommend. I'm going to guess Jen is going to do that when we get to the three Jens. Yeah, absolutely. So with that all being said, let's talk about the first turnabout called The First Turnabout. The first case of these games are always a bit of a tutorial. These cases are always a court-only affair, so we won't be getting into investigation until the second case. This one opens with a small cutscene showing a man holding a statue clearly in the act of committing something heinous as a woman lays bleeding on the floor. That whole cutscene is there to let you, the player, know that your goal in this episode is to prove that this guy is the killer. Takemi has cited that he took the inspiration of this from Columbo. That makes sense. 
as Columbo again is a show where you see the killer do the murder and then the whole episode's about how Columbo weeds through the misinformation to find the true killer. Also, Columbo is very unassuming. You wouldn't think he is as sharp and competent as he is. And it's kind of the same with Phoenix Wright because mm-hmm. he is a rookie lawyer. He's not going to know what he's doing. And then he basically proves that he's a lot more competent and that people underestimated him. Yeah, and especially when Jen's playing him, he's a lot more bumbling. <laughs> Shut up. No, we all were when we first played him. Yeah, that's true. The man has the idea to frame someone else for the murder. We don't know how yet, but this is where we now start the game proper with Phoenix Wright feeling quite anxious in the defendant's room before going into court. This is where you meet the man who's been accused of the murder, Phoenix Wright's childhood friend, Larry Butts. Just going to quickly go through the case record here that I'm going to do on every case. Defendant's name, Larry Butts. Charge, murder. I expect this charge quite regularly through the adventure. Victim's name, Cindy Stone. Cause of death, blunt force trauma. So I'm now going to invite you to describe the characters as they come up. We've done Phoenix in the first half, but how would you describe Larry? Larry is um, a bit dim-witted. Just a little bit. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like if Shaggy from Scooby-Doo was more of a himbo and has a penchant for models somehow keeps getting model girlfriends Mm -hmm. and was accused of murder. Yeah, Larry is quite an interesting character. He does show up quite a few times through all the games. And he never fails to surprise me at every turn. Yeah, I would describe him as being a chaos demon. What? Yeah, I think so. The man exists to bring chaos to an adventure. Sometimes for good and it helps you. Sometimes really for bad and it goes really awfully against you. Like... We first meet him, and the first thing he does is blubbering, going, I did it, I did it, I'm a murderer, I murdered her, I'm going to jail. And it's like, shut up, Larry, I'm trying to defend you, you fuck! (laughs) Yeah, he is just his own worst enemy. He really is. And it's kind of your worst enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's not my worst enemy, but we'll get to that. Larry is Cindy Stone's boyfriend. They suggest that Larry murdered his girlfriend in the apartment when he found out she had other partners. Yeah, they are labelled as various sugar daddies. Yes. The accusation is that Larry killed her using a statue that he made for her as a gift. It's in the style of The Thinker. Mm-hmm. And it's submitted as the murder weapon. Thankfully, Phoenix isn't alone in trying to defend this walking nightmare. He has his mentor and the head of his small firm by his side named Mia Faye. Obi-Wan Finobi. Yes. <laughs> She's a really good mentor figure with a really good mentor figure. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was horrendous. Three. Yeah, very strong and intelligent and also very compassionate. You can really see Phoenix take on her attributes when he goes forward as a defence lawyer, which is for the best. Yeah, she's a wonderful character. You get to find out a lot more about her in the third game. You actually get to play her for a little bit. Yeah, you don't get to know her very much in this game, sadly. We meet the people of the courtroom. First we have our judge, who only gets the name The Judge. Yeah, he's just Judge. He'll be a very familiar face throughout this game. Uh, yes, uh, yes he will. How the fuck did this guy become a judge? <laughs> How come? He is very, very persuadable. 
whenever the prosecutor says something, he's like, oh yeah, I think he might be right. And in some cases, the prosecutions are just like, oh yeah, this person's guilty. And the judge is like, oh yeah, I think they might be guilty. And then you say something that's a good point and he's like, mm, yeah, I think it's a good point. Maybe you're not guilty. And it's horrendous. Like he doesn't do his job at all. Well, he's good at helping you find the right killer. Mm-hmm. Is he? Name me a case he got wrong in this entire game. <laughs> but that's because he was persuaded by you. If it was a lesser lawyer, he would have been persuaded by the prosecution. And if it's a lesser judge, he would have taken the first explanation and not been open-minded to hear others. Yeah, he, but he's fucking dippy. He is a bit dippy. I'm not going to deny that. He lets but, the lawyers do whatever they want. But at the end of the day, he does help get to the truth in a lot of these cases. Having said that, Orville the Duck would have also helped you get to the truth at the end. And you might as well put him in the fucking judge's chair. We should explain that there is no jury. There's no jury. That doesn't come until much later games. Yeah, so all cases are decided by judge's decision. Which is probably why he's so persuadable. Mm-hmm. Next we have our opponent in court, Prosecutor Winston Payne. He's just kind of there. Yeah, he doesn't really have much personality in this game. He's not particularly competent. No, he is a rather feckless man. Massive non-entity. Imagine being Winston Payne. You've somehow managed to graduate a law degree after over a decade or so, probably. Somehow floated into becoming a prosecutor and now just spend the rest of your life taking up space in a courtroom. He is usually the first prosecutor in most of the games, but the third game does go a lot into his backstory. He only exists to be bested by better lawyers. Imagine that this crushing mediocrity is your life. I know. Imagine that. You're there because you're cheap. (laughs) You'll settle for rubbish prices because you're just there to take up space in this courtroom. This is your fate for the rest of your life. Yeah, he's not there to be an imperative character. He's mostly just there to be... A light obstacle in these open cases. It's actually quite sad when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah, a nice soft nut that's easy to ignore as you battle the lying witness. The witness in question, when he takes the stand, is a man who's very familiar to us, Mm -hmm. as he's the man we saw in the opening cutscene with the murder weapon. Mr. Frank saw it. I wonder why he's called that. We'll get into names in a bit, don't worry. My first impression was that This man is far too well-dressed to just be a door-to-door salesman. Yeah, his testimony is that he's a door-to-door salesman who opened the door at the time of the murder and saw Larry caving in Cindy Stone's head using this weapon. Yeah, he just happened to be in the neighbourhood. At the right place at the wrong time. Yes. Just looking at him, you can tell he's really shifty. Mm -hmm. He has conned many a pensioner. Yes, I would say that's very fair. He's like if phishing email scams were a person. Oh, 100%. <laughs> the case really revolves around the murder weapon. From first glance, it looks like a statue. But upon further review, and upon Frank explaining it so, it's actually a clock. Which was news to me. It looks nothing like a clock. Yeah, the idea being to turn the head or say, I think the time is 3.38. I cannot believe it's completely useless. Of course Larry Butts made it. Yeah, for a man who's supposed to be such trouble and scatterbrained, he's actually really creatively talented. It will come up again in a few games. But at the same time, why would you make that a thing? Why not just have a clock that has the time on it? Like a clock face. What's wrong with that? 
I can see the merit in it. It's a niche thing. Talking clocks used to be all the rage. They're not as common now. Yeah, I wonder why it's not as common now, because they're fucking stupid. And kind of useless, in my opinion. However, that does create a very interesting contradiction. You'd only notice that the statue is a clock if you held it. Exactly. So how did Frank saw it know this? This is the smoking gun which blows the whole trial apart. And Frank saw it has to change his testimony to match the fact that he had lied about seeing this clock. Yeah, and the whole trial just kind of devolves from there. He's constantly changing his story to make it make sense, which leaves him open to another error. See, I thought going through it that his motive was that he was one of the various sugar daddies that Cindy Stone had, who actually was incensed that she had other partners. No, it turns out he is just a common thief who targeted Cindy's apartment because she was supposed to be out of the country. But she just came back and found him in her apartment. She came home early. He panicked and just bashed her head with the statue. I was kind of disappointed that that was the case. That he was just a burglar. Yeah, but not a lot of these crimes are premeditated. Yeah, so they aren't. Even the one that seems very premeditated. Mm -hmm. So with that, we conclude our first trial and get a good sense of the system of this game. Best way to prove our client innocent is to put the real lying sword on the witness stand and get them to prove that they did the dirty. Yeah. We move on to celebrate with Mia and Larry, ready for the next day's festivities. Too bad the next day never comes for one of them. As we start episode two, Turnabout Sisters. We return back to the offices of Faye and Co to find Mia Faye slumped against the wall with a young girl crying over her. We find out this is Maya Faye, Mia's sister. Sadly, seeing her dead sister is not going to be the only bad news she receives today. She's framed for her sister's murder. Yeah, a witness across the street at the Gatewater Hotel saw the crime through the window and called the police. So now we have the details of our second case. Defendant's name, Maya Faye. Charge, murder. Victim's name, Mia Faye. Cause of death, blunt force trauma. Yeah, that's another blunt force trauma. Yes, in fact, it's the exact same murder weapon that they used to think her. Of course, I forgot about that. One of the first things you have to do in each investigation is visit your defendant in the detention centre. Mm-hmm. And get Maya's side of the story. Maya is unsure why her sister is murdered, but reveals that she was in the middle of some massive investigation. In fact, Maya was in town to get some documents off Mia and keep safe for her until the trial came up. Phoenix asks Maya if she has a lawyer, to which she wants to use Mia's mentor, a man called Marvin Grossberg. So how would you describe Mr. Grossberg? He's a fat, mustachioed man who is deeply unhelpful. Yeah, he doesn't really help out much in any of the cases. Yeah. He does give a bit of background to some of the old courtroom drama in one of the cases, but other than that, he's a bit useless. Isn't he all like, oh no, I'm very busy. I mean, she was a lovely girl, but I cannot help her with this court case. I am very busy. Yeah, he refuses to help Maya. Doesn't explain why, but he suddenly decides that he can't help. He's very busy despite the fact he is a clear schedule. Mm -hmm. So that's fun. That then leaves Phoenix as the only one who's willing to defend Maya. What doesn't help is that one of the people we do speak to is the lead detective on the case. He did show up for a little bit in the first case to give us the autopsy, but I do think he's more fitting if we talk about here. Lead detective Dick Gumshoe. You can tell he's busy doing a lot of detective stuff for his work. 
that he doesn't really think about like his appearance and how he looks so he's kind of scruffy looking mm-hmm. he doesn't seem all that bright mm-hmm. but he is loyal and he tries his wee best yeah despite the fact that he's quite tall he's kind of like how Columbo looks if he actually acted that way of being a bit bumbling and feckless yeah yeah with Columbo it's a disarming tactic yeah with Dick Gumshoe it's just bang on the money it's just him yeah <laughs> He's not completely incompetent, but I think his main weakness is that he trusts the prosecution side too much. Yeah, but I would stress that he is a good guy. He is a good guy. I like him. He may or may not have a thing for the prosecutor in this case. It's kind of obvious. It'd be more cute if it wasn't for the fact that said prosecutor is an absolute dick. Yeah, he is. We did mention him a little bit when we were talking about his exacerbated face. Yes, he is going to be our main opponent for most of the cases on this game. There's one thing you did get wrong in our intro. You thought it was going to be a different prosecutor each time. There are only three in this game. And for the most part, you're taking on Miles Edgeworth. Yeah, he's someone I disliked quite a bit. I kind of morphed him and a later prosecutor into one character. Yeah, I said you did this in our intro. As I go on with talking about this game, you will understand why I ended up morphing those two characters together. Edgeworth has got silver, moppy emo hair. Like, not Sephiroth hair. Like, it's a darker grey and not quite as long. But it is definitely one of the Sephiroth thoughts from Advent Children. That kind of hair. He also wears, like, a deep red velvet jacket and a cravat. Just a little frilly one. You know, nothing too outrageous. And everything I do, he says, oh, that's irrelevant to the case. Even when it is deeply, deeply relative to the case, what are you talking about, you absolute bullshitter? Yeah, Edgeworth does have a reputation in this game of first off being undefeated, but also being slightly on the dodgy side. He says he will do anything to get a guilty verdict. And he's accused of manipulating the facts to get his guilty verdict. And forging evidence. Yeah. Once we've done enough of the investigating of the crime scene and actually getting access to the Gateward Hotel to speak to the witness, a woman called April May, it will lead us to go into our first day of trial, which is mostly going to be about hearing the testimony of Gumshoe and his version of the events, and then hearing the testimony of April May. How would you describe April, just before we go a bit more into her? She has pink hair and wears a baby pink suit and Mm. dark skirt. And the jacket's got love hearts for buttons, like big love hearts for buttons. Yeah, especially right in the centre of the cleavage. Yeah, I looked her up a bit on the Phoenix Wright's wiki and it says in her fact file that her hobby is flirting and her power is seducing men. And you look at her and how she conducts herself. She talks in like uwu anime baby girl talk and like does this thing where like she has like her hands up at her jaw to like push her boobs into more of a cleavage. Yeah, she has got massive appeal. Yes. I think I said the words uwu cutesy bimbo in my notes. It's another disarming tactic. Yeah, she turns the entire court, including the judge, into just whimpering simps. Yeah, like, and when I say bimbo, I mean it in, like, the reclaimed sense, where it's using your hyper-femininity and sexual power to your advantage. Seeing her in the courtroom and seeing 
how enamored most of the men are to her. You can tell she's managed to persuade some of the men in the courtroom by using her special power, we will say. Yeah. With Edgeworth conducting the prosecution, the whole accusation is a bit of a well-oiled machine, giving Phoenix little chance to argue back at first. Though thankfully we do find a few errors in April May's story. There are some times throughout the game where you get a red herring at the start where like you really think that person did it. But we know in April May's case that it couldn't have been her because she was across the road at a different building. We saw her when we found the dead body of Mia across the street on the phone. Mm-hmm. So that is a bit there to show that it's not all the people in this game who are lying on the witness stand are the guilty party. Though in April's case... She is hiding something. Yeah, she is absolutely an accomplice. Yeah, like she may as well have accomplice written on her pretty little forehead. Yeah, and it doesn't help the fact that she knows things that she shouldn't. For example, that she knew that the weapon was a clock, seeing as the thinker again. Yeah, she couldn't have seen that from across the street. And also the fact that this time it didn't go off when the killer hit Mia because the mechanism had been removed. Mm Mm-hmm. So how did she know it was a clock? That becomes a whole element as to how she seemed like more than just a bystander. More like she was watching Mia specifically. But there is a bellboy on the case who does offer April May an airtight alibi. So she is not the killer. Yeah, I mean, we didn't think she was the killer, but she was involved somehow. Even then, um, she may have also used her special power on the bellboy as well. Mm -hmm. It's kind of implied the way he talks about her. I know this is not vital to the case, but he is like an absolute opportunistic capitalist. Mm -hmm. Instead of seeing the tragedy involved, he's like, oh yes, my hotel will be the spooky haunted hotel. True crime tourists will flock to my hotel. Despite the fact he is the bellboy, he is not the owner of the hotel, as far as we're aware. So with April May being arrested to find out what she actually knows, it does end trial for the day. And we go back into investigation mode to do a bit more investigating. As April is an accomplice, that does lead us to her boss, a man called Mr. Red White of Blue Corp. Which he says is the company of the future. Mm. And considering Blue Corp's whole thing is stealing people's data and using it against them. Yes. Yes, they are. The company of the future. Yes, yes. Blue Corp is just a ridiculous name as Alphabet. Truly the ABCs of breaching privacy laws. Red White is basically a JoJo's Bizarre Adventure character. Oh, totally JoJo. He's got purple hair, a chiseled jawline, male model physique, and just this, like, pouting energy, like, look at me, I'm so great. While having a personality that's made of dog shit. <laughs> He does strike me as Donald Trump's super ego. Oh, yes. (laughs) He walks about with expensive rings on each finger that would make Tom Brady blush. (laughs) The villains in this game are very camp. Like, super over-the-top and flamboyant. Just nuts. I mean, Red White owns a giant company that sells private data and has a golden statue of himself as Atlas carrying his company slash the Earth. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. They're not exactly like the Sopranos or the Godfather type complex characters, but I live for it. 
iconic, I have to say. He becomes a person of interest to this murder trial as we proceed through the case to find that Mia was doing an investigation into Blue Corp, which might be related to her death and to Mr. Grossberg's reluctance to take on this case. Mm-hmm. This is our main motivation as we investigate further. As we get too close to the truth, however, and confront Red White, he does say to Phoenix, wait a minute, actually, I just remembered, I saw this murder and uh, you killed her, directly accusing Phoenix Wright. With Phoenix now the accused, he opts to defend himself in court. So the rest of the trial at this point is just poking holes in Mr. White's testimony. Sadly, with his mountain of bullshit and with Miles Edgeworth doing what he can to support Mr. White's bullshit, and saying that things that are very relevant to the court case aren't relevant. We find ourselves caught very deeply in the corner, when suddenly we see Mia show up and help us, getting over the slight inconvenience of dying two days ago. Yeah, like she comes up as a force ghost. That happens quite a bit throughout the different games. Not just a force ghost, but she actually appears thanks to the help of Maya. Who like channels her spirit or something? Yes, Maya is a spirit channeler. She can channel dead spirits to inhabit her body. Yeah. Her physical appearance morphing into theirs. Yeah, so Mia, like, kind of cosplays as her sister for the time that Maya's channeling her. Yeah, her body completely morphs into her, including having Mia's much bigger chest. Yes, Mia's um, attributes. Once Mia shows up to help, she shares some of her knowledge on Mr. White, which helps us blow this entire case apart and thankfully getting Phoenix Wright innocent. Another interesting thing about the Jamaican court system is that they believe in mediums and spiritual stuff. No one questions that maybe Maya is acting, considering that she was accused of her sister's murder. Yeah, and rather than her just saying it's like, yeah, this guy murdered me, admittedly Mia is smarter than that. She does go to present evidence that makes someone else prove who murdered her. So with that, we did it. Our boss is dead, but we saved her sister from this evil corporation. And now she's Watson. She now becomes our assistant for the next two cases in this game. Onward we go now to case three, Turnabout Samurai. This case kicks off with Phoenix and Maya watching Steel Samurai in their office, a popular kids show very much modelled in the formula of Power Rangers or Ultraman. Right, yeah, yeah. The most recent episode gets postponed, and in finding out why, it's because the lead actor has just been accused of murder. Oh no. So Maya coaxes Phoenix into offering his services to help him in court. That's right, we're going Hollywood with this next case. I don't know if it's Hollywood, it's more like CBBC or CITV type production. Defendant's name, Will Powers. Charge, murder. Victim's name, Jack Hammer. Cause of death, impaled by a sharp object. So not another blunt force. No, this seems to be a stabbing. Yes. Will Powers looks like Wolverine. Now, when you say that, do you mean the combat character or Hugh Jackman? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's got, like, the spiky up hair and luscious sideburns and is super buff. He's all like, oh, I can't show my face or the kids will be all sad and not know what to think. He's very, very meek-mannered. Yeah, which is a kind of contrast to the mighty warrior steel samurai that he plays. Yeah, but it's also a contrast to how he looks. He's got, like, this personality. You know who he reminds me of really heavily? Who? The lion in The Wizard of Oz. Ah, yeah, yeah. He's, He's got this giant mane of hair, but he's also quite cowardly. Yeah, yeah. He is not murder material. He is not, no. But that's why we choose to defend him. Mm hmm 
With him accepting our services, we then go on to investigate the staff of Global Studio, where the murder took place. Everyone was on lunch at the time, mostly in the employee area, some in the production offices in Studio 2. The body was found in Studio 1, where Will Powers was napping at the time. There is a security gate to get to Studio 1, which shows someone going through it in the Steel Samurai costume. So the only person that went by was in the Steel Samurai costume and they found Will Powers napping near the crime scene. That's how he ends up becoming the prime suspect. Also, the way to Studio 2 was blocked off at the time. So that narrows the number of people who could have done this even further. Although the crux of his defence is that anyone could have worn the Steel Samurai costume. True, that becomes a massive element, that the costume is entirely body covering. And if you actually look at the image carefully, it doesn't seem to fit right, which becomes a massive point to help defend him. Mm -hmm. So unlike the last case, we have quite a number of witnesses to this one. Starting with the security guard, Wendy Oldbank. She is a difficult old woman who instantly takes a dislike to Phoenix and Maya because they're young people. Mm Mm-hmm. They're on the property and she thinks that they're being rude and disrespectful. But she's also quite shifty and conveniently forgets important information. Now, this is a recurring theme throughout the game that people just forget important information. Mm -hmm. But this is the first person that I thought, yeah, she's doing this deliberately. I thought genuinely she had I did it written on her forehead. But then there's another part of me that was like, ah, it's too obvious. Can't reveal the killer straight away. So it was very interesting to see what we'd do. Yeah, she is the grey-haired mistress of bitching. She comes in two flavours. Either mega bitch mode, which she complains about the youth of the day and of Phoenix. Interestingly, like when she's ranting, the text box will just keep filling with dialogue really quickly. Yeah, before you can even, like, continue or press continue, it'll just do it for you. Yeah, just this idea that she's just blurting out this word salad and you're just caught having to listen to it. Or she comes in needy bitch mode, where she's foaming at the gash from Miles Edgeworth and the victim. And she goes out of her way to be nice to them. Yeah. Can I just take a little aside here and have a bit of a talk about the names of the game so far? Yes. How are you finding these names? Some of them are kind of like a bit uncreative, mm-hmm. but some of them, like April, May, mm-hmm. the person who was making up those characters was clearly having a bit of writer's block. But then there's other ones where it's kind of weirdly appropriate, like Willpowers, Willpower, Penny Nichols, mm-hmm. the assistant, Dick Gumshoe is, I think we talked about it in the car once, and you said that Dick is short for detective. Yes, Dick is an old nickname for a detective. Yeah, and so is a gumshoe. Yeah, so he's detective, detective. And Wendy Oldbag, she's an old bag who is like blustering away. You yeah, know. she's very windy. Yeah, yeah. Not in like the farting sense, because that would be like too much. No, that'd be more fitting for Grossberg, who keeps going on about his hemorrhoids. Oh, so he does. I forgot. I managed to repress that. Thanks. <laughs> to go right back to the original game. In Japanese, Phoenix Wright is named Ruichi Naruhodo. Naruhodo is a Japanese expression meaning I understand. Oh. Ask like a response. Hence why Wright was picked as his surname. Yeah. But all the characters have this. I mean, winced in pain. He winced in pain. <gasps> oh, I didn't think of that. Next case is going to have Manfred von Karma. Manfred from Karma. Ooh, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Some of the names are brilliant, but then there are other ones just like Red White and April May. Which are like, okay, right, cool. You've kind of phoned that in. Now, as you said, there are some other people that are at the studio. There's Penny Nichols, who's the assistant. Yeah, there was a while where I thought she'd done it. Mm -hmm. She was one of my suspects for a little while. Yeah, she's very quiet and unassuming. Yeah, and it's always the quiet ones you have to look out for. And Mm -hmm. she was also a key witness at all the different places. I was thinking, hmm, I have my eye on you, Penny. Yeah, that's the mindset you have to have in this game. You have to kind of suspect everyone. Yeah. We also have a young kid who's snuck through security, Cody Hackins. Yeah, that little shit. Mm -hmm. Who refuses to give you any information until you have given him a sufficient bribe. Yes, giving gifts to our kids for information, that's totally what adults do. Yeah, that's totally ethical crime-solving detectivism. Mm -hmm. We also have the heads of the studio involved. The director, Sal Manella. Oh, yeah, him. Yeah, very gross-looking guy. He's the director who hits on Maya when we first meet him. Yeah, he just oozes sleaze, doesn't he? Yeah, you have seen him at Comic-Con. You smelled him at Comic-Con. <laughs> he, has, he also strikes me as someone who has directed weird porn parodies in his time and maybe does that in between seasons. Mm. Yeah. We also have the producer, Dee Vasquez. She's a bit shifty. Yeah, she has this kind of classical Hollywood look to her, doesn't she? Yeah, with like her cigarette holder and her like her head scarf and everything. Mm-hmm. Very glamorous. As the case goes through, we do learn that the murder scene wasn't in Studio One, but happened elsewhere in the lot. So it becomes a game of trying to work out where the real crime happened, why it happened, who was in the suit, and what the actual murder weapon was. And also who actually committed the murder. Oh yeah, that too as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A case like this is always my favourite in the Phoenix Wright games. Yeah? The games are very formulaic. Episode 1 is the tutorial. Episode 2 sets the scene and introduces this game's prosecutor. Episode 4 is this game's finale, which then that becomes episode 5 in later games, at which point episode 4 usually becomes another only court case that's a bit supplemental to the story. But with every game, the third case is usually a big, silly adventure. Yeah! Yeah, I suppose so. It's not about moving the plot forward. It's instead just showing these characters be their weird selves. Like, this is the case between Wendy Olbag totally ganting for Edgeworth and with Cody Hackins constantly undermining him. This is a great episode for seeing how Edgeworth gets exacerbated. Yeah, genuinely, whenever Wendy Oldbag starts, like, cooing over Edgeworth, he's like, Ew, no. <laughs> Not with a barge pole. (laughs) I mean, in saying that, the Steel Samurai does come up in later episodes. Mm -hmm. Because it's like a cultural thing within Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Third Case is always a great place just to see who these characters are in this adventure. This episode, for example, we get to see Edgeworth getting completely sick of the Witnesses shit. Mm. Maya fangirling over the production of the show. Mia, again channeled by Maya, getting people to do things for her just for her beauty. And we even get Dick Gumshoe swinging in to rescue us during the last investigation phase when the killer starts to get a bit pushy. Um, and also, fun fact, Edgeworth helps us solve this case and prosecute the killer. Yes, it's actually quite interesting to see at the very last stage when the killer is on the witness stand refusing to talk, Edgeworth compels them to do so. Yeah, I was shocked, like... But you'd said you'd do anything for a guilty verdict. 
But then you would do anything for a guilty verdict. Maybe it's not on the defence side, but it's a guilty verdict. Yes, it's when you learn that Edgeworth is actually here to find the truth. Yeah, which is interesting considering his reputation. Mm -hmm. At the end of this case, after we get Will Powers found not guilty, we do get Edgeworth approaching us in the lobby afterwards. Yeah! Saying to Phoenix that he did not expect to see him again. Yes, again. They had known each other from before. And Maya's all like, you guys couldn't have been friends! Miles warns Phoenix not to cross paths with him ever again. Though, Phoenix will go against this request in the next episode. He doesn't really have much choice. Like, Miles Edgeworth is a prosecutor. They work in the same district. They can't not see each other again. It's also never really said how they know each other. And the way Edgeworth says, I never want to see you again, implies something. It's revealed in the next episode how they knew each other, but... In my head, they'd been in the same class in law school. The way the scene plays out, it makes it seem like they had been dating or he had feelings for Phoenix and Phoenix didn't have a clue because, like, of course he didn't. And that's why he's like, I never want to see you again. You're distracting me. I kind of ship them. I'm going to be that person. You know, that whole, like, lover's friends to rivals to lovers again. And during that whole conversation, I'm just like, kiss him, you fool! Kiss Phoenix right in his stupid smug face! (laughs) I mean, hot takes only on this podcast. (laughs) You are far from the first to launch that ship into the sea. (laughs) Champagne bottle and all. I can see them, like, exchanging glances at each other in the lecture halls or having heated discussions during the seminars. That's not really how it went down. But, like, I kind of wanted to believe it for a little while. No, we get the truth in the next case. Town about goodbyes. It's December 25th, so Merry Christmas. This is a Christmas episode now. Thanks very much. Yes. And we're celebrating it in the way a good lawyer would know how. Listening to the testimony of an old childhood friend, turned prosecutor, turned suspect. Defendant's name, Miles Edgeworth. (gasps) Charge, you'll never believe it, but it's murder again. Murder again? Yes, who would have thought? Who would have thought indeed? Victim's name, Robert Hammond. Cause of death, gunshot from one metre away. That's right, this next case has us defending Miles Edgeworth from a murder charge. At the request of Gumshoe, who wants us to help his friend. Yeah. Edgeworth went to Gord Lake on midnight of Christmas Eve, went out on a boat with the victim, and then the victim was shot and killed from a short distance. Too close for it to be a long-range shot, and too far for it to be suicide. In law practices, this is commonly referred to being royally fucked. <laughs> Edgeworth refused their help at first, but with enough convincing admits that he didn't kill the man. Somehow. Even though in the cutscene, we saw him holding a gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't recognise his face at first, which makes me very face-blind. Yeah, I mean, it's anime, so if not for the hair, then they all have the same nose. Oh, so it was Kataj, not Edgeworth. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Because Edgeworth is serving as a defendant, it falls upon the head prosecutor, Edgeworth's own mentor, to prosecute this case, Manfred von Karma, the most feared prosecutor in the land. You thought that Edgeworth was bad? This guy is Edgeworth on steroids. Mm-hmm. It's like if you gave all the kangaroos in the kangaroo court very strong Red Bull. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely barmy. He kind of acts like the judge, 
and dictates the pace of the case, mm-hmm. and the judge just lies there in his back, wanting a belly rub. Yeah, he is a relentless bully. A relentless bully. He's described as being a man who has never once lost a conviction in his entire 40-year career. Which is suspicious. It's suspicious, but also deeply troubling to go up against our lawyer in his fourth ever real case. Yeah, especially one that Edgeworth is just like, he's the greatest thing ever. I can't win against this man. So because of that winning streak, Von Karma has a lot of hype. Mm -hmm. But you know who else had a lot of hype? Sam Bankman Friedman. <laughs> you know, before everyone realised that he was a fraud, which, yes. I mean, he was marked as the most generous billionaire, which doesn't add up at all, gives me exactly that energy where they'll just trust whatever he does. And also the fact that Avon Karma is probably very rich. Yes, he is also very corrupt. Oh, deeply corrupt. Because he's also accused of faking or hiding evidence to get his convictions. Not like Edgeworth, where it's just rumours. Probably because he's associated with Von Karma. Yeah, in Von Karma's case, he does actively steal documents off you using a taser. Yeah, and tells witnesses what to say and what not to say. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that explains his winning streak. With this case, there's only really three witnesses. One is the boat shop owner, who's a bit mentally incompetent. A bit? The other is a photographic journalist called Lotta Hart. Who says she's photographing the stars, but actually isn't. No, she has got photos of the lake. Now, she's ashamed to admit it, so we have to kind of coax it out of her. But she is like a cryptozoologist. She's here looking for the Gourd Lake Monster. Ah, yes, the Gourd Nest Monster. Yes, Gourdy, he's called. Gourdy. Of course, because of his prolific hurdy-gurdy skills. Yes, this is a whole story that comes up in this case where a few days ago there was a loud bang and then someone got a photo of a strange monster coming out of the lake. So she's like a cryptozoologist and wants to get a photo of it. One of the things that I found really funny was the fact that they had a light-hearted story about the Gourdness monster being real and then straight after, by the way, Robert Hammond's been murdered. <laughs> Some of that. This is also not helped by the third witness, none other than Larry Butts. His testimony is objectively shit. It's right after someone is declared guilty and he's just like, stop the wedding, I object. And then like, they let him do his testimony and then because there's crucial evidence in what he's saying and he is actually kind of a credible witness, Mm -hmm. they consider it and they decide, right, okay, maybe let's not give the guilty verdict just yet. Much to Von Karma's dismay, but it isn't objectively a bad testimony. He does save us, though. Even though it is bad testimony, it does help keep the case going. No, I'm meaning in the sense that a court would not take it seriously. Of course not. How does anyone take Larry Butts seriously? Yeah, I mean, the guy's called Larry Butts. He's a chaos demon. He is just here to cause mayhem. Yeah. Although, thankfully, as you've already pointed out, this being the court of the Wallabies, this (laughs) keeps the case going. The chaotic nature of the court system in Jamaica. It works in our favour this time. Mm -hmm. At the heart of this case, though, lays a strange previous case called the DL6 incident. A case which involved Maya's missing mother, Misty Faye, Edgeworth's dad, Gregory, the victim in this case, Robert Hammond. Ah, yes, Robert the Hamster Hammond. And Manfred von Karma. In this case, Edgeworth's dad, Gregory, was the victim. He had been killed while he was trapped in a courthouse lift during an earthquake with Miles Edgeworth and the court bailiff Yanni Yogi. The statute of the limitations in this case ends on the last day of this trial 
and to solve this murder, we need to dive deep into that one too. This story goes a long way into explaining Miles Edgeworth as he is. This is where we learn about Edgeworth's backstory. Miles grew up looking up to his dad, who was a defence attorney, wanting to be a defence attorney when he grows up like his dad was. This, incidentally, is what brought him and Phoenix together back when they were kids in primary school. Larry, Phoenix and Edgeworth all went to the same school. And one day, a girl's money is stolen and the only person not accounted for at the time is Phoenix. They did a class trial and everyone labelled Phoenix as guilty. Edgeworth is the only one to raise up to Phoenix's side and point out that he wasn't guilty, with Larry corroborating it and trying to help Phoenix. Phoenix gets labelled not guilty by the class and everyone just moves on. But it's something that stuck with Phoenix and became his origin story why he wanted to become a lawyer. Then, obviously, everything happened with Edgeworth's dad being killed in a lift. Edgeworth was then raised by Manfred von Karma. So Manfred von Karma also counts as Edgeworth's adopted father. Oh my god, that makes it even worse, actually. <laughs> Which, it makes sense as to why Edgeworth is the way he is, and why he would think that dubious means of getting a guilty verdict would be a good idea. And explains now how we have the situation where Edgeworth has become a prosecutor. Going back to Edgeworth's case, we get the real killer back on the witness stand, go through the usual efforts of objecting, holding and take thatting, mm-hmm. and we get them to confess. With that, Phoenix serves as the first lawyer ever to defeat Manfred von Karmer. Case closed. Almost. Objection! Edgeworth objects, insisting that he did do a murder. Not of Robert Hammond, but of his own father, Gregory Edgeworth. I know, I wanted to sock him one! The love of your life has risked everything to exonerate you, and this is how you repay him? <laughs> for shame. So, Von Karma pushes for Edward to be found guilty of this crime, right here, right now, since it's the last day before the Statue of Limitations end, as a way to try and claw back his record. He may have not got a conviction on one case, but he'll get it on the second. Phoenix Wright agrees, and also opts to defend Edgeworth on this trial too. We have no time to investigate, nor question people, and we need to solve it based on the information we already have. Not an easy task, but yet, Phoenix Wright rises to the challenge. And we're not going to want to spoil it, because we really want you to play this for yourself. Yes, so we'll go straight to the end and say that Phoenix Wright finds the real killer to whip Von Karma's other arse cheek in the one day. (laughs) How does it feel knowing you get the best of Von Karma? Oh, it's very satisfying. Felt amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel very, very accomplished. Take that, you fucking cunt! Nah, 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 nah. I won, I won. I beat your four-year record. Nah, 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 nah. Right, okay, I think I got that out of my system. And with the end of this case, Edgeworth's penance to his guilt has finally been lifted. The nightmare is over for him. And then the gang, Edgeworth, Phoenix, Maya, Lotta Hart, Gumshoe and Larry Butts all go for burgers together. The day is saved. And they live happily ever after. Game over. Hold it! Oh, wait, of course, we have the fifth case as well. This is the one that was made especially for the DS release, so it wasn't part of the original game. Made evident by how this title does not fit the fucking naming convention. That just pisses me off. Other ones are like, oh, turn about samurai and turn about goodbye. This one is just called Rise from the Ashes. Not turnabout rise from the ashes, or rise from the turnabout ashes, or rise from the ashes turnabout. No, no, just rise from the ashes. So, it's been a while since the Edgeworth case. Maya left in the original ending to go and train back on a village. Yeah, building up her spiritual medium skills. And Phoenix is running the law office but not taking any cases since the Edgeworth case. 
In Maya's absence, a girl around Maya's age shows up at the office looking for Mia Faye. Phoenix Wright explains that she's no longer with us, <clears throat> but the girl recognises Phoenix and asks for him to take up the case instead. Her name is Emma Skye, and she needs someone to defend her big sister. Defendant's name, Lana Skye. Ch- murder, obviously murder. Victim's name, Bruce Goodman. Cause of death, loss of blood from stab wound. Lana was Maya's senior in law school, hence why she came looking for her. Lana is the district's chief prosecutor and confesses that on the day in question, she had done a murder in the car park of the police headquarters. So already going into this, she's admitting that I did this. Another one where they're just admitting, yes, I did this, and Phoenix has to defend them anyway. Emma is a hobbyist forensic scientist mm-hmm. and encourages slash browbeats Phoenix into using forensic methods to investigate this case. This was done to put greater emphasis on the DS touch controls. Yeah, yeah. There's like powder for fingerprints mm-hmm. and there's a way to like find like blood stains that have been washed off or whatever. Yeah, with luminol. Luminol, yeah. At first I thought, oh, a bit unnecessary, all that, and spinning around the evidence at multiple angles to get one thing. But after a while I warmed to it and I thought, yeah, this really works. This adds something to the Phoenix Wright franchise that hasn't been there before. Yeah, it allows you to go a lot more in-depth with the evidence. Mm -hmm. Now this case has its own cavalcade of strange characters. We have Angel Starr and Jake Marshall, two former detectives that have turned into a dinner lady and security guard, respectively. As much as there are many gimmicky characters in Phoenix Wright, they all feel like they've served a purpose. There's a reason why the gimmick's there. It all makes sense. But Jake Marshall is the first character who I felt that their gimmick didn't work. What what, what is his gimmick? He is a cowboy Mm -hmm. from Texas. And that's his thing. Yeehaw. And it's like, why is he a cowboy? Was there any need for him to be a cowboy straight out of a spaghetti western? Because they already knew that they were going to be international with this DS game and they wanted to appeal to the Americas. We're going to pander to the Americans by having a cowboy in our game for no reason. Mm -hmm. Wow. The chief of police, Damon Gant, Lana's work partner and becomes quite involved in this case. Officer Meekins, a bumbling policeman who gets involved heavily in the case on the second day. Yeah, Officer Meekins is very much the doofy in this game. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, but less competent in the end. And of course, the most suspect character in this entire case, the Blue Badger. He is a truly terrifying source. What is it? He's an animatronic type cardboard cutout Mm -hmm. created by Gumshoe. Who knows not what he has unleashed onto the world. Yeah, this hell demon. It's so cursed. It makes, like, all the characters from Five Nights at Freddy's seem utterly delightful. Oh yeah, he would fit so well into the Five Nights at Freddy's formula. He would kill all of them. Even though he's only like a cardboard cutout. Yeah, all of them would be dead and the diner would only be him. (laughs) (laughs) It truly is William Afton. This is a difficult, long case. The forensic science really adds to the length of this one. It also adds to the story in general, but yeah. This was the only case not written by Shu Takemi, who was taking a break from the series when the DS version was being made. And I think it kind of shows. I mean, I guess there are points where it feels a bit long and I lose momentum with it in a big way. And as much as I can understand why some of the artistic choices were made, 
it's more the sense that, oh, this fits a purpose rather than this narratively makes sense and is kind of satisfying. Yeah, it's part of the problem that you have here that you end up making assumptions before the game expects you to have made them. Yeah, you've got to do it in that railroaded order. That happens in some of the other cases if you have got an eagle eye. Yeah, yeah. In the third one in particular, I had that. I had an inkling for something that I couldn't prove. But with this one, you caught the contradictions, pointed them out, and the game went, no, that's not the right one. Only for that to turn out to be a contradiction later. That really fucked me off. Yeah, there's flaws in the writing of this one. And it's, I don't want to just be mean because it's not Shooter Kemi. There's plenty of games that have cases not written by Shooter Kemi, but this case does serve as a great example of what he avoids in making sure that information fits at the right time. And even if you as a audience member will be able to see the pitfalls coming you can at least still see from now what the game is trying to let you know yeah still even with all that added weight we get through this case find the true killer and we truly complete phoenix Wright ace attorney how did you feel after seeing the ending yeah i felt quite good there was something really nice about edgeworth being included in it and i felt it felt nice and i felt quite good about myself I'm glad, because this is a great game that you get to the end, you know all the mysteries, you just look back at it. There's a lot of fun to be had with it. Yes. Of all the games we've had on the podcast so far, this one is probably the smallest impact on its initial release. Mm-hmm. Which is understandable as it didn't leave Japan for four years. It sold very small, but was given quite favourable reviews. This included a 32 out of 40 in Famitsu, one of the most high-profile review magazines in Japan. That decent critical reception is what led to the next two games being made. So far, we've had six mainline Phoenix Wright games, along with three spin-off series. One where you go back to Victorian London as Phoenix's ancestor. One where you play Miles Edgeworth and investigate crime scenes. And a crossover game with the Professor Layton series. Oh, which is like another mystery detective thing. Yeah, that's going to get on this podcast at some point. Yeah. There was another remake of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney made. This time with the second and third games as part of the Ace Attorney Trilogy HD. This came out on all the consoles and it's even available on the Apple and Android app stores to keep that game in your pocket feel that the DS offered. Yeah, so you don't need a Nintendo DS to play this game. You can play it on your phone or on your PlayStation 4 or 5. We're in a bit of a strange place with the series right now though. There are two mainline 3DS games, the follow-up handheld from Nintendo that were never given physical releases outside of Japan. They were released digitally, but since Nintendo have pulled down the 3DS game store for handheld, this leaves these entries unplayable. Even looking on the app store, I can't find them, which they used to be there. I mean, unless you downloaded it already. Mm. Now, the smart money is that they're going to announce a second trilogy collection, bundling the games 4 to 6 like they did with 1 to 3. Expect that announcement soon or was announced while I was editing this episode, because that's how soon I expect this. Wow. There's actually a Capcom conference in like two days' time. Right. Where I, this is my big prediction that they're going to announce Ace Attorney Trilogy 2. Oh. If I got this right, the listeners are going to hear this, and if I got this wrong, you're probably hearing this in DLC. <laughs> Fucking called it. The legacy of Phoenix Wright is not to be underestimated. He has became video game shorthand for anything legal in the gaming industry. You have a YouTube video about some game company suing you? Are you accusing a game or defending a game against someone's perceived slight? You put them on the witness stand from the Phoenix Wright series. Now I've joked about Guybrush Rickwood and Duke Nukem becoming Smash characters. 
But of all the games we've covered so far that don't have a character in the Smash franchise yet, Phoenix Wright is the one I personally predict will come to the series sooner rather than later. You're really hoping that he's in Smash, aren't you? They have been in a fighting game before. He is in the Marvel vs. Capcom games. Oh, really? I didn't know that. So it's not unheard of to put him in a fighting game. Yay! I have given this game the best defence I can. So now I throw it over to Judge Jen for her to give her final analysis. Phoenix Wright makes for a great detective show. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah, it's kind of like Columbo or Sherlock Holmes for young teenagers, like a Saturday morning cartoon type thing. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of good kids shows, everyone can enjoy it. These sorts of stories tend to follow the same beats. Not exactly note for note, but readers do expect a certain rhythm. Yeah, they could be quite formulaic. Yeah, a lot of genre fiction can be that, but that's not really a bad thing. The parameters and character archetypes, plot points and setting need to be put in place and nailed down because it's really about solving the puzzle. So everything that you as a writer want your reader to know needs to be signposted really well. Mm -hmm. For example, when it comes to settings, mystery books generally take place in a small selection of key locations Mm -hmm. or the same location. World building is pretty utilitarian. Even in like a sci-fi or paranormal setting, it's not complicated. Ace Attorney has a limited number of locations you can travel to. Phoenix's law office, the detention centre where you talk to your defendants, the scene of the crime and other places of interest you get to go to. Mm. There isn't really an open world to explore. Like This isn't like L.A. Noir or Grand Theft Auto V. The time frame needs to be pithy too for these kinds of stories. In the shows I've seen, they're usually solved within a month at most. Or in the case of Law and Order, it feels like a lot less time has passed because they kind of do time jumps. Mm -hmm. They only really show you what part of that day was important to that case. Yeah, and Phoenix Wright, I don't know if we said this earlier, but all the cases happen over three days. Yeah, you're given a scandal in Bohemia of time to solve a case. Mm -hmm. A murder case with really high stakes. But that's done so there isn't some massive element of time and losing of evidence stuff like that between cases yeah court cases that involve serious crimes generally take a long time absolutely yeah (laughs) and i don't know if like people who are reading a mystery novel want a long protracted court case the setting of the story starts out as normal and ordered Mm -hmm. this order is disrupted by the incident or the murder that takes place normality can only really be restored once the murder's solved and then things return back to an ordered world that makes sense sort of i don't know because one of the biggest problems that phoenix wright has in that regard is that the courtroom is never a normal place you're never in the courtroom when things are normal like, Phoenix Wright never occurs in normal. Maybe at the very start of a case, you'll get, like, them going somewhere before murder happens. But for the most part, think of the third case that happened at the studio. You only enter that world after you have accepted the job of being Will Power's attorney. I don't know if it's, like, necessarily, like, the physical setting is more the state of mind of someone entering the setting. Mm, that's fair, yeah. I mean... Think of all the stately homes or small country villages where nothing happens is now struck with tragedy until Miss Marple or whoever else solves the case. Mm. 
Except Cabot Cove, for Murder, She Wrote. Oh, yeah, that place is just Murder City. Yeah, America's deadly seaside town. Yes, yes. <laughs> I will maintain that. There are probably more deadly seaside towns in the world, but Cabot Cove is up there. <laughs> yeah, my mum has it on record that if Jessica Fletcher or Dr. Mark Sloan ever step onto a cruise that she's on, she is getting off that boat one way or another. <laughs> she's paid like £2,000 for a cruise in the Bahamas then she sees like an old man that slightly resembles Dick Van Dyke and she dives off the edge <laughs> that's his murder mystery why did this woman jump off the boat it must be a murder at least with Phoenix Wright he is someone who only shows up after someone gets murdered it's why Columbo doesn't bother me either he is a policeman investigating murder. This is his job. It's not like they just happen to be there when the murder takes place. Yeah, these other people just happen to always be in the room when someone gets fucking off. <laughs> Speaking of characters, mm-hmm. everyone in the mystery story needs to fulfill a role. There's the sleuth, the detective. Sometimes mm-hmm. they work alone, like Columbo, or work with a sidekick. So like Sherlock Holmes and Watson, Phoenix Wright and Maya or Emma in a later game. So the sleuth solves the mystery. Mm -hmm. Throughout the whole game, you're solving a mystery as Phoenix Wright. Mm -hmm. Second of all, there's the sidekicks. So they help the detective solve the mystery. Mm -hmm. Duh. Sidekicks have skills and experience that come in handy in helping solving each case or have qualities or some knowledge that the detective doesn't have. In Phoenix Wright, Maya's psychic abilities allow for Mia's force ghost to appear. Mm-hmm. And also opens up the door for supernatural elements to it. Yeah, that's something that will plague the series. It is like complete nonsense, you know. No court would trust a medium to talk to the victim. No. In Phoenix Wright, it's all go. Thirdly, we have the villain or murderer. Mm-hmm. I put those in the same thing because... They're the same thing in most mystery stories, but Phoenix Wright has two kinds of villain. The murderer and the prosecutor. Yeah, that's very fair. They're both antagonists who are trying to stop Phoenix from solving the case. Mm -hmm. The antagonist generally should have a bit of an intellectual advantage over the protagonist, Mm -hmm. or think they do. Yeah, that definitely comes up in this game. Like Sherlock and Moriarty. Phoenix and Edgeworth. Yeah. Not all villains and detective stories have sexual tension and uh, queer undertones, but (laughs) (laughs) what do I know? (laughs) The murderers in Phoenix Wright think they're invincible and, oh, I'm going to get away with this. This is just a silly defense lawyer. I have the court in the palm of my hands. But they're not. I think Columbo has a similar thing where the murderers think they're winning the mind games and Mm -hmm. are going to get away with what they've done because they've thought about everything. And they've got this, like, bumbling policeman sliding up to one like, I'm right there, pal. (laughs) Underestimating him and then, ha, fuck you, I've solved the case. Yeah. I win. (laughs) That element of underestimating the detective definitely just builds Columbo. Yes. And also builds Phoenix Wright. Fourthly, you have the victim. Of course, you don't have a murder mystery without the murder victim. Or in things that aren't murders, they're still the victim of the crime. Mm -hmm. Sadly, for a crime to take place, there's got to be a victim. Phoenix Wright sometimes veers too close to the law and order side of victims, Mm -hmm. where sometimes they can be just some non-entities. Yeah. 
But it happens a lot, though, that the victims are more often than not plot devices. Mm -hmm. They're a vital plot device. So if you get them wrong, you've got the plot completely wrong. But in Phoenix Wright and a lot of the other stuff that I've watched recently doesn't really have that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want you to be emotionally invested. Yeah, because it's easier to digest something that's light-hearted and not emotionally distressing. This series usually tries to take emotion out of a lot of the decisions. They want you to look at a lot of these cases purely on a logical base. Mm. I think that's why they always try to undercut everything with humour. Yeah. Is to make sure you don't get too emotionally invested. Yeah, yeah. They're called cosy mysteries. There's the cosy in the sense that they're going to get the bad guy at the end. Fifthly is the red herring or red herrings. This is someone or something that's designed to throw the reader or viewer who wants to solve the mystery off the scent a little bit. Misdirection and red herrings are important in these stories because it makes a puzzle harder to solve. You want a bit of challenge in some of these things. I think Wendy Oldbag's a really good example of a red herring. She's very suspect. Mm -hmm. She's very hostile to you. You know she knows things, but she refuses to reveal anything to you. And she has emotional ties to the victim that are kind of unstable and unhealthy. So I went in to cross-examining her, convinced that she did it. But then there's another part of me that's like, oh, but it's a bit too early in the story. This is too obvious. Mm -hmm. And that's when, oh, it was someone else or someone else that did it. <laughs> that we've not really been introduced to properly. Yeah. Which was a bit annoying, but they place red herrings pretty well in a lot of these games. Mm -hmm. The big thing about Phoenix Wright is that they already have a red herring being quite central in the story as being your defendant. Yeah, that's true, actually. One thing I find quite interesting, though, is that the defendant doesn't often do a cross-examination. Not often in these games, no. As far as I'm aware, in court, you don't have to. If you're defending a case, you don't do any testimony or anything, especially if it's going to make you look more guilty. Yeah. I mean, it would make sense, but... It is implied that they are in the room the entire time. Yeah, yeah. So they are there. Like, every now and then you'll see that Lana does sometimes just lob in her opinion to the court very openly when she's asked a question. Mm -hmm. And then, final kinds of characters is the supporting cast. Mm -hmm. So these are just other characters that add to the story. They can be witnesses or potential suspects or friends and colleagues of the sleuth. With Phoenix Wright, your regular cast of characters is like, you know, you get Larry Butts, you've got Dick Gumshoe, you've got Mia who turns up as a force ghost every so often. But you also get a really varied supporting cast that are one-off for the episode. With the first game especially, the reason why people like Grossberg and Larry Butts reappear for the fourth case is actually part of a space limitation thing. It allowed them to reuse the same sprites. Ah. Again, that was part of the pushing up against the technology element. Well, it was kind of more of a space limitation thing. It was something that does come quite common in the franchise. There is a lot of returning faces. They do help like, flesh out the setting a little bit more. But yeah, they do add a lot of like humour and whimsy and really contribute to that light-hearted tone. On to the most important thing, the plot. It's important in most stories. Each episode of Phoenix Wright starts with the murder. 
the murder prologue, as I like to call it. Mm -hmm. Then Phoenix and the gang talk to the defendant, who is in the detention centre and is all sad because they're innocent, but everyone blames them for the murder. And you're given three days to get them off the hook Mm -hmm. and potentially save their life because apparently Jamerica has capital punishment. Yes, it does. That does come up in a later case. Yeah, um, that was wild finding that out. Ha ha ha! This is supposed to be a lighthearted game for preteens. What the fuck is this? No, in this world, in its three-day court case, you'll probably get killed on the fourth day. <laughs> yeah, sharp in the morning. What do you want for your last breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, we couldn't get those nice pancakes. You're like, here's some Rice Krispies. <laughs> the body of the episode... You cross-examine the key witnesses and suspects to find inconsistencies in their testimonies. Mm-hmm. Witnesses lie or conveniently misremember. It's normal to try and figure out who's lying in a detective story. It's part of the genre. But in Jamaican courts, perjury is as serious a crime as pirating episodes of My Little Pony. Oh yeah, totally. <sighs> Again, by the format of the show, it is the problem that The game only works if you point out inconsistencies and the most convenient inconsistency is a lie. Sometimes it is a mistake and sometimes it is an error. But for the most part, all cases have to involve someone who is just saying things that are wrong. I mean, there's a difference between being wrong and actively lying and trying to misinform your way out of being executed. Either way, if they mean to do it or not, they're still saying something that's wrong so you can go, well, actually... (laughs) Oh, like that whole to-do with a talking clock. Like, oh, it's a statue. Oh, but it's actually a talking clock. That was a clock? Really? That participation trophy for being Larry Butts' girlfriend? That's a (laughs) clock? Really? Like, people also just hide evidence and it just turns up out of nowhere. That's another thing that kind of really, really annoyed me about the game. And at first it was like, how dare the prosecution hide evidence? And then I came to realise that, oh, I'm a hypocrite. I'm also hiding evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Why haven't I showing these people? But it's because I don't trust the prosecutors as far as I can spit at them. A good detective story will make the reader aware of what clues are significant or what they want the sleuth to believe is significant. If the sleuth has found a clue, they should point it out. Mm-hmm. I think this is one thing that Phoenix Wright does well, especially for newer players. You get indicated on what's important and, oh, remember this for later, because it is saved onto your court record so you can look back at information about the item. Also, in the trial, you can't just, like, spam all the options. You only get five chances to present the right evidence. So if you present something wrong that doesn't back up your point at all, you'll get penalised for it. Which, a lot of the time, like, I did find some of the puzzles difficult, Mm -hmm. but they weren't impossible. I didn't feel properly cheated by how difficult it was until, like, the fifth case. Mm -hmm. But that was because, like, they needed me to solve things in a specific order. Mm -hmm. So, all of that said, the end of every mystery story generally comes with a reveal and recap. Mm Mm-hmm. They usually happen at the end of each trial where there's a significant thing found, not always having led up to the murder, but some vital that you should know this. They'll sometimes have cutscenes, which will show you what you need to know. Mm -hmm. I think the appeal of murder mysteries is, well, the mystery and how satisfying it is to solve it. Yeah, that's what we're here for. There's closure at the end and justice is served, Mm -hmm. mostly. In Phoenix Wright, I get to catch the killer myself and outsmart him, I can beat their manipulative mind games and the odds that are stacked against me. Mm -hmm. 
There's catharsis in solving these things alongside the sleuth and feeling like a proper smarty pants for doing it. Yeah, there is. We're looking for a bit of escapism in these stories. Mm-hmm. Honestly, nothing is more escapist these days than a world that has its own logic and makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. Phoenix Wright's Jamaican district makes no sense. It is buck wild and nuts, but it does have its own internal logic to it, which you can understand to an extent. <laughs> Wait, you think the case is over now, Jen, but you haven't heard from my surprise witnesses. What? As we go into the listener submissions, I had trouble getting these on Twitter, so I did reach out to the r Ace Attorney subreddit to get some of these. You know, getting used to a Reddit before it dies. Or should we say murdered? Hey. User Racecar Art starts us off with... I didn't grow up playing video games, but when I was 18 going on 19, my boyfriend at the time, now husband, let me borrow the systems he wasn't using as much during college, namely his Wii and his DS. I started buying any game I had heard good things about online and started watching those top 10 best whatever videos and video games to get ideas. That's where I learned about Phoenix Wright and Professor Layton. Well, I didn't have any consoles growing up. What I did play were PC mystery games with my sister, namely the Nancy Drew games by Her Interactive. At the point of finding out about Phoenix Wright, me and my sister were in the middle of falling out, so I couldn't bring myself to go back to those games, even though I was really craving a good mystery. Both Wright and Layton seemed like they were really going to scratch that itch for me. Mm -hmm. I remember starting Phoenix Wright in the evening and becoming so engrossed that I blasted through the first two cases in a single night up until 2am. Right, wow. The music, animations, and just how satisfying it felt to play all hooked me immediately. Mm -hmm. On top of that, the relationship between Mia and Maya hit me like a ton of bricks. And Maya coming back made me feel like maybe me and my sister would be able to patch things up one day. That was 12 years ago, and at this point, I've been a fan of the series ever since. That is a really sweet story, and I really do hope that you and your sister did patch things up. But I think the takeaway from that is that Further than what you talk about when it comes to video games and mysteries is that this game is wonderful for giving you that nice itch of solving a mystery. Yeah, scratching the itch. I can really relate to the staying up too late to play video games that I like. Time does just fall away when you're engrossed in these things. And it's not until you look at the clock you realise, oh, I've been up for five hours longer than I should have been. There is something wonderful about having a good mystery to solve. Yeah. It's so compelling. You want to know what happens next. That's why you get so many fans of augmented reality games Mm -hmm. and people still trying to solve the secret after, like, decades and decades. People just need a good mystery to solve. It just so happens that solving the mysteries in Phoenix Wright does not involve digging a hole in a park. Not yet, at least. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) That'll be the Switch version where you can dig a hole in a park. (laughs) The internet crawler writes in with... Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney is the first game I played non-stop start to finish. My fondest memory was curling up sick with my DS Lite and finishing off Von Karma at the end of Turnabout Goodbyes. Yes, I know that satisfaction. Just wiping that smug grin off his face and breaking his corrupt winning streak. Oh, brilliant. I know that it's all programmed before I get there. Yet even in the moment, you can't help but feel like you've outsmarted this man. Yeah. 
That is one thing about detective games that I think gives them the edge over novels or movies. If you aren't following the logic, the book will continue and the show will continue and you will be eventually told what the solution is. Mm-hmm. With Phoenix Wright, the story will not proceed until you solve the case. Mm-hmm. No one is going to DSS Machina the solution into your hands. They might give you hints, but outside of going to the YouTube and finding someone tell you the answer, you have to solve it yourself. Yeah. But when you do, oh, it feels so good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Fuck you, Von Karma. <laughs> Just... Fuck you and your big, thick, luscious cravat. <laughs> Don't worry, we're not done with the Von Karma bloodline yet, but that's coming. Mm. And finally, we have Fkin176. Before I played the very first game, I actually found it through an Among Us video parody. Oh, Apparently that was just popular on the internet around that time. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't very good at that game. Yes, we can add that to the list of games you have actually played before we started the podcast. Yeah, I wasn't very good at it. I was always worried I'd be made the saboteur and I'd ruin the game for everyone because I can't (laughs) lie. Getting back to the story here. The parody video was Among Us, but it's Ace Attorney. And after the third video in the series released, before actually playing the Ace Attorney games, I knew what the series was. But my knowledge wasn't bigger than what's known in grander pop culture. Mm -hmm. Seeing that video and noting that Among Us and Ace Attorney are similar in the fact that you solve mysteries and try to nail the culprit, I thought, well, why not? I gave the DS version a try and wow, it was a breath of fresh air compared to anything I'd played before. Mm. The game was so simple, but so charming at the same time. By the time I'd got to the second case, Turnabout Sisters, I was completely hooked. And then the series went on to become one of my favourite game series of all time, as well as the characters becoming my favourites. Like, that is one of the weirdest things about this game. I find a lot of people are like Fkin176. They know who Phoenix Wright is. They've seen him in the Capcom games or seen him referenced in YouTube videos. Like, we watched our OSW review video recently where they did a whole prolonged parody of Phoenix Wright. So it's a massive, like, cultural touchstone. But it's very criminally underplayed. This is a series with such little hype around it that, ah, fuck it, we're not going to do a physical release of the games in North America and Europe. We'll just do a digital release. That is how that series is kind of treated. Which is a real shame. I know, it's something to be celebrated. Yeah. I just don't think it has the right appeal. I mean... It should. It absolutely should. But at the same time, it doesn't surprise me that I had to go to Reddit for these stories. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for all those stories. Thank you guys so much. I really hope you've all swayed the case in my favour. Yes. Especially as we give our final verdict in the three gens. So for last gen, did the game live up to your expectations? And do you feel it holds up as a classic? Yeah. I'm always pleasantly surprised when I find a game on this show I really like. Mm -hmm. Not that I don't think they'll be good, but I just never know what to expect and in what way it's going to be good. Mm Mm-hmm. Phoenix Wright really does deserve a place as a classic video game for all the reasons that we've talked about. It managed to bring the murder mystery genre into modern gaming in its own interesting way. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's been plenty of other games that have been murder mysteries over the decades and decades video games have existed, but none have done it quite like Phoenix Wright. No, games are now imitating Phoenix Wright's system, let's put it that way. Yeah, because it's a good system. Mm -hmm. The visual novel is a really good go-between for mystery and gaming because people who are fans of mystery, a lot of them will have like read books or short stories or tv shows or movies this is like a kind of nice bridge because you're still reading Mm -hmm. playing visual novel games i think is basically reading Mm -hmm. 
and there's so much of it that's reading text. But yeah, Phoenix Wright is a unique entry into gaming canon, and I think the world's better for it. Mm -hmm. For current gen, what are your highlights of the game? And is there anything in the game that didn't work for you? Um, the puzzle pieces and the game's story fit together really quite satisfyingly. Mm -hmm. It's just chef's kiss. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> I feel like a brain box when I'm able to figure it out for myself. And that I'm like, yes, I'm a very smart person. I like the camaraderie the core cast have. It's such a wee nice, sweet dynamic. Mm-hmm. Hoping against hope that Edgeworth and Phoenix get married in the next game. They would be, they've got great chemistry. They'd be amazing together. I'm deadly serious. Capcom, please make the internet's dreams come true. Make Rightworth happen, Capcom. Make my dreams come true. Don't scoff. Edgeworth, kiss him in his stupid face. <laughs> There's something uniquely sexless about the whole Phoenix Wright series. Yeah. I mean, spoiler warning, Phoenix Wright will have a kid even though I'm not sure he's ever had sex. He probably reproduces asexually. Yeah. <laughs> the little bean grows in his arm and it pops off. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a great sense of humour. It's very funny and silly. Mm -hmm. Even the points where you're like, oh, come on, are more funny than game-breaking, for lack of a better term. Yeah. That blue badger fucker in the fifth episode will haunt my nightmares. Mm -hmm. It is my sleep paralysis demon. The song will echo in my mind palace as that cardboard cutout animatronic thing stands at the foot of our bed, mocking me with its dead, pale eyes. Just imagine the crossover between the Blue Badger and Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah, the Blue Badger looks like something from Parappa the Rapper, but more sinister. <laughs> <laughs> there are some things in the Phoenix Wright games that happen that are a bit immersion-breaking that you think, that would never happen, but it adds to the humour. It's not game-breaking, it's more stupid and funny. Mm-hmm. Adding to like the melodramatic tone of it all. I mentioned the Turnabout musical earlier. My friend was working on that and I finally got to watch it. And it's so sweet. It is a very faithful adaptation to the game, which is why you didn't want me to watch it. Yeah, I was going to spoil too much. It really captures how extra Ace Attorney is. The courtroom suddenly bursting into song is really not all that far from reality in that game. You could see it happening. I really like it. I recommend that you check it out. It's called Turnabout, an Ace Attorney musical, and it's free on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's adorable. Go watch it. And finally, for next gen, would you recommend this game to a newcomer? And are you interested in trying other games in the franchise? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I was messaging one of my friends who is a very casual gamer. She literally bought a Switch just to play with me on Animal Crossing. And I was talking to her about it and she said that that sounded a lot like her thing. She likes Edgar Allan Poe and other kinds of detective books. So we've been right up her street. So I recommended that to her. There's already a Switch adaptation out. Yeah, you can get it as part of Ace Attorney Trilogy. I just played it on the DS and it was still very, very accessible. The puzzle and mystery solving is pretty, it's quite intellectually stimulating. It's not like war and peace or anything, but it does get your brain going. It's also just such a fun game with like cute characters and funny hijinks. I love it. I'm interested to see other games to see how the characters grow and change, but I'm particularly interested in playing the Phoenix Wright game that takes place in Sherlock Holmes times. 
add it to the long list of video games that I'm still to play that I've said I'd be interested in trying. What I'd like to do from here is see how you handle games that build off this formula. Yeah. We probably will get one of the Danganronpa games on this podcast. Oh, yeah. The thing with the half and half bear. Yes. Oh, Matt, that sounds like a wild game from what I've heard. Stay tuned for that one. Spoilers from the episode comes, but essentially just Phoenix Wright on pixie sticks. <laughs> and actually suffers worse from tone whiplash. Oh, yeah, yeah. You'd probably get less whiplash in an S&M club as far as I've heard. God. <laughs> <laughs> I'd also love to read more visual novels. I really do quite like them and I want to get better at reading for pleasure. Surprisingly enough, reading for a degree can end up really burning you out on just reading for pleasure. I graduated two years ago and I'm still trying to get that muscle back. Oh, we're definitely going to have to do more visual novel games. Yeah. I'm not sure when, but we'll have to take an aside and go through one of the Zero Escape games. Mm-hmm. probably virtue's last reward maybe 999 i don't know what we'll do but it'll give you a great idea as to what else can be done with the visual novel format mm. oh and we have to do a dating sim at some point we do we absolutely do probably have to get our pigeon fucking on with hatful boyfriend oh what about dream daddy i've heard so many good things about that i've not played that one yet i'll have to come back on that decision onward we go to the age of our next episode. It's been four games in a row now where we've covered the genres we've done before, if you count Phoenix Wright as being an adventure game. So it's about time we find a new one to play. Though we did brush up against this genre in the Final Fantasy VII episode. Mm-hmm. There we came across our first brief glimpse of the real-time strategy game genre. Mm-hmm. Well now we're going in for a deeper look, using one of the biggest names of the genre back in the 90s, as we enter... The Age of Empires 2. Yay! We would love to feature more people's thoughts and experiences of this franchise. Please send your stories to startaquest at gmail.com or send your tweets to at startaquest while you still can. And we'll find a few stories that we can read out on our next episode. For now though, thank you very much for listening while I rant about one of my favourite game series of Phoenix Wright. Oh, thank you for introducing it to me. Now is the time for you to leave your verdict on your podcast platform of choice and hopefully rate as well so we get noticed by other people who are on the same journey to hear people gush about amazing video games that you've probably never played. (laughs) As always, you can find me on Twitter at StarterQuest or you can see me posting around Reddit at U-StrokeStarterQuest. I'm accessible through both. We are starting to get our Facebook off the ground. If you want to come join us, we're on Facebook as StarterQuest and I promise I'll start using it more. You can find out about me as a writer and see a portfolio of things I've published at jenhuswriter.com. I've been publishing a few different magazines and stuff over the years and I put my readings up sometimes on my YouTube channel, Jen Hughes Writing. And you can find me on social media. My Facebook and Instagram are both Jen Hughes Writing. I'd like to thank the consoles for this episode's theme song, their 2020 cover of Court Begins, available over on their YouTube page. I've started going through all our episodes and adding a link to our themes in the description, which will take you to the song on YouTube or OC Remix, depending on where I plug it. So if you are want to hear more of them, just check out the description of this episode, or you can type the consoles, that's C-O-N-S-O-U-L-S, on your music platform of choice to hear their amazing jazz remixes. They are very good. Yeah, in picking this song, I've ended up falling through a kick of jazz remixing video games. Mm-hmm. 
brought me back to Insane in the Rain and their great music. Yeah, yeah, really good covers over there. But for these guys, they're the consoles. Do check them out. Until next time, when we're learning about the broken power of priests, it'll be a goodbye from me, Alessandro. And a goodbye from me, Jen. Quest completed! (laughs) 